think we all, uh, as we grow up, our families have different uh, things that they do at Christmas time and different ways that they celebrate Christmas. One of the things that would often happen in the home I grew up in is we'd get a few gifts each year from our parents, but then we would typically get, in fact, I think as far back as I can remember, always got one big gift every Christmas. And that's usually the gift that you cared the most about, right? That's the one that you'd been asking for for months. It's the one you really wanted and anticipated. Oftentimes, my parents would get, get each of us our own version of essentially the same thing, right? Especially my brother and I. So one year we would all get bikes or we would all get skateboards or we'd all get uh, Sony boom boxes. And then a couple of years later, we all got Sony Discman, you know, right? You ever have that Discman and then you're riding on the bus and you got to hold it so that the, the CD doesn't skip, you know, as you're going? One year we got 13-inch TVs. Thought it was awesome, a 13-inch television. You get the, the rabbit ears, and so, you know, you got to get it, you know, the TV in your room and position it the right way, you know, like NBC was this way, but if you wanted to watch CBS, you had to move the rabbit ears the other way. Stuff like that. That is awesome, yeah. And I don't know, I don't know why my parents always basically gave us the same thing. Maybe it was just a matter of convenience. Hey, here's one good thing. I'll just buy three of those and then we're done. Perhaps, perhaps it was to keep us from arguing with one another about, you know, who's got what gift and which one was better. I don't know if you've ever seen that happen amongst kids. You know, a kid opens their gift on Christmas and they think, oh, this is so great. And then their brother or their sister opens their gift, and then they're looking at their gift like, oh, wah, wah. You know, like, I wanted that. I wanted what they got, not what I got. Suddenly their gift is second rate, even though they were excited about it a few minutes before. And that's the sort of thing that bothers us as parents, right? Because as adults, we have a, a, a greater perspective. We understand that the gift that this child got is, is actually more than they really deserve. They didn't have to get anything, that lots of kids don't get anything. We understand that as adults, and we see that happen, and we think, at worst, we think, man, what, what, a, what a brat. You didn't have to get anything. And at best, we think, well, that's just a child acting childish. That's what children do. And they'll grow out of it. But do we, naturally, do we automatically grow out of that sort of thinking? 
I, w- I was considering this this week or last week when I was writing this, and I thought about those car commercials that come on the TV around this time of year. The car drives by, and it's like, it's the season of giving. Buy a new car. I think I thought to myself, the season of giving, the spirit of giving doesn't sell cars, does it? The spirit of comparing sells cars. You see that nice car drive across your TV screen and you go, well, my car's not that nice. It doesn't drive that well. It doesn't go that fast. It doesn't have that fancy thing on the dashboard. That's not giving that sells cars. It's comparing and getting. So I wonder if even as adults, we don't struggle with the same kinds of things. And so Jesus models in the Lord's Prayer these petitions to God. The two that we are going to look at this morning, one is for physical provision and one and the other is for spiritual provision. And Jesus declares that our Father in heaven is the God that gives and he's the God that forgives. But do we recognize what God has done for us in a way that actually motivates us to pray to reflect that same heart to others? Do we see that Jesus came to provide what we truly and really need? Or do we tend to look at other people and wish that we had what they had or wonder why God gave us what He's given us. And if we see that for what it really is, if we see it as Christ solid, as he's sharing the Lord's prayer with his disciples, if we have the same heart that, that he has, if we understand that Jesus really did come to provide all that we truly need, what would that lead us to do in response? Let's look at these two verses, verses 11 and 12. The first petition that Jesus prays says this, give us this day our daily bread. Now, bread is a term that was commonly used for for, uh, uh, all the food that they would need. It's not just bread. It's not like Jesus is saying, hey, man, I've been eating too much meat. I I just need a loaf of bread today. Need some carbs, feeling some carbs. Now, he's intending to communicate, Lord, would you provide for me all that I need physically? For many first century workers that would have lived alongside Jesus when he was walking on the earth, they would have been paid one day at a time. They'd have worked today and gotten paid at the end of the day and then used that money for tomorrow. And that was how it went. I mean, when you want to talk about living paycheck to paycheck, right? 
That's paycheck to paycheck. And so the prayer here, as one scholar puts it, is for our needs and not our greeds. It's literally Jesus saying, pray for your daily provision. And so if, if Christ is commanding us to do this, should we then just skip work and pray? Just, uh, I don't need to go to work. All I need to do is just sit down today and just pray all day. Lord, would you please provide for me what I need for tomorrow? No, of course not. There's an abundance of evidence in the New Testament that as a Christian, we are expected to be responsible and to uh, be hardworking people. Paul charges the Thessalonians to make sure they are diligent in their work. He warns people in strong terms to care for their families. They're ab able, Proverbs tells us, to be like the ant and not like the sluggard. Paul at times even works a second job while carrying on his ministry if that's what is best for God's kingdom in that place. Praying for God's provision doesn't negate the means through which God often provides those things. Namely, our responsibility to work. On the other hand, this responsibility can also be pushed to an extreme, right? We often see in our culture a value of being totally self-sufficient. To not depend on anyone or not need to depend on anyone for anything is like the highest goal for life in our culture oftentimes. We often hear phrases like financial freedom. If I could just have financial freedom, if I could just be independently wealthy, there's no such thing as being independently wealthy. You are always dependent on something. It's funny, independently wealthy people seem to have a lot of money tied up in, you know, maybe the stocks or mutual funds. Well, you're pretty dependent on those businesses doing well for your independent wealth, right? You're pretty dependent on breathing another breath for your independent, quote, wealth. And so this type of thinking creates two outcomes. Either we uh, begin to develop pride and a false sense of self-control when things are going well, or on the flip side, if things aren't going so well, what happens? We begin to have this sense of anxiety and a false sense of it being out of control, right? And so Jesus speaks to both of these things later in chapter 6. Just after praying this prayer, he speaks specifically to those. And as Christians, we understand that this kind of freedom is really a mirage. We are not the source of our own resource. We're dependent on God always for everything, every single day. You don't have to live life very long for either yourself to experience or for someone you know to experience some kind of sudden uh, mishap where 
they feel like they're doing great and everything is good and they've got money in the bank and then something happens and all of a sudden, poof. All that they held on to for their security and their control and their, their sense of foundation is gone. See, even the richest person has finite means. Even the richest person, you can put a dollar amount and there's commas and there's a period and, and, and there's an end to it. Whatever can be gained can be lost, but, but God... There's no end. There's no end for him. He is not just rich. He is the source of all riches. Here's the point. This prayer that Jesus prays recognizes a foundational principle of Christianity. That is that God owns everything. Every dollar in your bank, every possession in your house, everything that you have, it is not owned by you. It is owned by God. He will do with it what he wants. We, you and I, are merely stewards of those things. They are on loan to you temporarily and when you die god will loan them to someone else right i mean when we think about it logically we understand that it has to be that way and yet we consistently in our day-to-day life think that our stuff is really actually ours it's not This prayer recognizes who's the ultimate source of everything. Who gave us the skills and abilities that we have? Who put us in the situations that we are in to be born in the time and place that we were born? To receive the education that we received? To get the job that you got and have the salary that you have? God did all those things. They didn't come from you. Now, he calls you to do your part in in being responsible to, to work hard, like I've said, but that's from God, not from you. And so Jesus recognizes that God provides everything. I've been watching with my wife this show, and I'm going to uh, embarrass and point out that the Pangeta's got us hooked on it, and so it's Paul and Sarah's fault. But we've been watching this show called Alone, and the premise of the show is this. Ten people get ten, ten items. They get to pick ten items to take out in the middle of nowhere, and they get dropped off on a helicopter by themselves, and it's basically, all right, see how long you last. Ten items, see how long you can live out in the middle of nowhere completely by yourself. And it's funny, and they self they film themselves. They have some cameras and they film themselves this whole time. And what happens inevitably in, in every season or with most of the contestants is they go through these stretches where they just can't find food. So they'll go six or seven or 10 days without having eaten any, basically anything. And then finally, one of their traps or 
their net or whatever will catch a rabbit or a squirrel or a mouse even. And they'll be sitting there and they'll be holding it and they'll start, tears will start running down their face. And I've never seen someone cry over a dead rabbit so much, right? And, and they'll be so thankful for just this, this one guy, he, he, he catches a mouse, and gets smushed by a rock, and it's, it is a pancake mouse that is frozen, right? And he's crying in thankfulness and gratitude for what essentially amounts to like 200 calories of mouse meat, right? He's so thankful. And I wonder if sometimes we kind of get lulled into this spirit of ingratitude for the abundant provision that God has given us. But here's what bothers me in the show. Inevitably, some of the contestants, as they're holding their dead rabbit that they're about to eat, will thank the dead rabbit. Or they'll thank nature. Or they'll thank the world for providing them with this food that they have to eat. Thank you, dead rabbit. The rabbit is dead. And if it was alive, it couldn't understand what you're saying. It didn't provide itself. God provided it for you. God made that rabbit. He made the world that it lives in. It's God. God gives us these things. The creator, not the creation. When we rightly see ourselves as stewards, what he has given us, it holds us when we rightly see ourselves as stewards of what he's given us, it holds us accountable to being responsible for what we actually already have, that he's already given to us. And it frees us to not hold so tightly to what we have or to grasp so adamantly for the things that we don't have. Because we know that if God owns everything, then he'll give us what we need when he wants to give it. It should drive us to pray instead to the God that gives when and how he knows best. And this should produce in us a deep sense of gratitude, right? A, a stability that empowers us to be generous. I don't have to be stingy because God gives me what I need. And he is an abundance of resources, unlike the child that gripes about their gift not being as good as someone else's gift. We realize that God doesn't actually owe us anything. Just, I think sometimes we think that just because we've managed to be born and to survive this long, that God must owe us something for having done that. And we fail to recognize that our own birth and our own survival is also a gift from God alone. The only reason you draw breath the next moment of your life is because God is allowing you to draw that breath. It's not because, you know, you just have really managed to have really great lungs. 
And so if he sustains us and he gives us more than we need, then we can freely give to others when he leads us to do so. We may, we may be the means through which God intends to give to the next person. And what an amazing opportunity it is to be used by the creator of the universe, by the source of all good things, to be used by him to give to someone else. You see, the root, the root is that God gives us everything. And when that truth digs down deep into the soil of our lives and it begins to be watered by the spirit and by the word of God, then the fruit of our lives becomes generous giving. To say it another way, we don't give to receive. We don't give in order to get we give because we have already received. We serve others not because of what they've done or will do for us, but because of what God has already done for us. And here's where the Lord's Prayer shifts to a deeper and even more important reality. You see, the second petition that Jesus shares is this, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. You see, debt is a term elsewhere in Scripture that's used for sins and for transgressions, and that's the best understanding we have for that word and that term here in this prayer. Jesus sees our sins not merely as mistakes, not even as debts to the person that we've offended, but first and foremost as a debt to God. Do you understand, church, that when you sin, First and foremost, that is not an offense against another person. That is a debt to God. It is an offense to God before anything else. And so when we sin and we say, oh, well, that's not that big of a deal. It doesn't really hurt anyone. Well, yes, it does. Yes, it does. It's an offense to a holy and perfect and righteous and loving God. Our world is stuck in a mindset that says that it's on, it only matters if it's material. That only the material is real. And Christianity says, no, that's not true. Both matter. Your body and your soul, the physical and the spiritual, are just as real as one another, and they both matter to your Creator. And if we had our Father's perspective, we would see that our need for forgiveness actually outweighs our need for food by a long shot. That we have built up a tremendous debt to God. And so the prayer then is for God to forgive those debts as we have forgiven others for their debts against us. But does that then mean that our forgiveness of others forces God or is a prerequisite to God forgiving us? And I think, I think that would be a misunderstanding. Let me explain. You see, we need to remember that when we call this the Lord's Prayer, we don't, 
It's kind of a, a misapplied term. It's not really God's prayer. It's not like Jesus was praying this prayer all the time. Rather, it was the Lord's prayer for us. It was the Lord's prayer modeled to us. A better term for it would actually be the disciples' prayer, right? Because Jesus is saying, hey, disciples, pray like this. It's meant to be a prayer that would guide those who already believe and trust in Jesus. It's a, it's a prayer ultimately to guide those who have already been forgiven. And so the first phrase of verse 12 is the petition of a disciple who realizes the depth of their need for forgiveness. Even disciples continue to sin, but we are convicted of those sins and we ask for forgiveness from him who forgives us. And so when it says, forgive us our debts, Lord, forgive us our debts, that's a, peti a petition from the disciple who understands just how deeply they need forgiveness. The second phrase, as we've forgiven those who As we've forgiven the debts of others, that phrase is the action of a disciple who realizes the depths of forgiveness they have already received. Disciple, disciple, true disciple realizes just how sinful they are and how far from God they ought to be, but they also know that our Father in heaven is the God that forgives. And he's forgiven us through the coming of his son, Jesus. So the more you realize, the clearer and truer this picture becomes in your mind and in your heart, the more you are able to forgive others. The more that you realize just how much you've been forgiven of, the more that you then are able to forgive other people's people for what they do against you. The forgiveness we have in Christ produces in us a gracious attitude that is ready to forgive others. Jesus illustrates this. He kind of gives us an anti-example of this in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Peter comes to him and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Uh, should I, should I uh, do it seven times? I think Peter, knowing Peter probably is thinking that he's giving this, you know, abundant answer. Like, I'm not going to just say once, I'm going to say seven times. Because then Jesus is going to be like, wow, Peter, you do it seven times. You're so awesome, Peter. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't do that. He tells this story. He says the kingdom, of, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who is going to uh, settle accounts with his servants. And so he calls his servants in and he says, hey, you owe me some money, pay up. And one servant comes in who owes him, it says 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money. It's a whole lot of money. And since he, he couldn't pay it, his master, the king, he orders him to be sold. His wife, his children, the whole family. So he get at least a little bit of money out of this guy. And, and the servant, he begins to just fall on his knees and he begins to beg, 
please, please, please don't sell me. My kids, have patience with me. I'll pay you everything, even though the sum of money is so much farther than he could ever make in his entire life. There's no way that this man will be able to pay this money off. The king, it says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. Out of pity, the master says, you know what? Never mind. I release you. I forgive your debt. Go. But when the same servant, the same one who just had been forgiven, goes out and he sees one of his fellow servants who owed him just a hundred denarii, right? Just... Uh, so an amount that could be easily paid. He seizes him and he begins to choke him and say, hey, pay what you owe me. And when the fellow servant falls down and, and says the exact same thing, please have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. I'll pay it back to you. This servant refuses and puts him in prison until the debt would be paid. And when the other servants see it. They go into the king and they tell the king what has happened. And the king brings, summons this servant who he's, whose debt he had forgiven back. And he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Friends, we should read that parable and it should sober us to our very bones. It should stop us dead in our tracks. Jesus is not speaking in hyperbole. He means what he says. If the servant had grasped the depth of what he had just been forgiven, then his heart would have found it easy to forgive the smaller debt. But his lack of forgiveness reveals that his heart had never actually truly been repentant as he begged for his own life to the king, he merely sought to preserve himself. And without repentance, friends, there is just no forgiveness. Instead, his heart was hardened and he didn't grasp the magnitude of what the king had offered to him, the magnitude of what the king had done for him. And so he didn't forgive the other. You see, it's not that our forgiveness of others forces God to forgive us. It's not like God's like, oh, shoot, Cody's forgiven everyone who's ever sinned against him. Now I've got to forgive Cody. Oh, man. It's not that our lack of forgiveness somehow negates God's forgiveness as if our deeds can somehow trump the deeds of our creator. Rather, the one who has truly been forgiven, who has truly been restored to God, will be moved to forgive others out of an, 
an immense measure of gratitude for what's been done for them. If you can't find it in yourself to forgive another, then you ought then you ought to consider whether or not you have an accurate grasp of your own sinfulness and whether you have an accurate grasp of Christ's forgiveness. Because I wonder, I wonder if something isn't missing there. Even the biggest offense against another human is a mere trifle in comparison to the debt that each one of us owes God for even the smallest of our offenses. Now, you might say at this point, hold on, hold on, Cody. I know I've sinned. I don't deny it. I know I've made some mistakes. But compared to other people, it's really not that bad. But isn't this just the same things that the kids, the two kids with the gifts do? We've all had this happen to us, right? We ask a child, you know, one of our kids comes up to us, if you're a parent, and we say, hey, did you, did you hit your brother? It's a yes or no question, but I don't, I'm still yet to get just a straight yes or no when I ask it, right, the first time. I never have. It always starts with but, right? Did you hit your brother or your sister? But he, but she, it's a yes or no question. How often with God, we, we are convicted of something we've done and, we, and God says, hey, hey, d- is this what I asked you to do? And, and immediately we go, but, but, but this happened, God, but, but this was going on and this is the reason why. And God's going, no, this is what my word says. It's a yes or no question. A few theologians, I think it, in recent history anyways, are more familiar with horrible sins than the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer who moved back to Germany during World War II in order to seek to spread the gospel in his own country in the midst of a horrendous situation. He saw the crimes of the Nazis against his friends and against his neighbors. He saw the insides of the prisons that they held people in, and he saw himself hung for it. Bonhoeffer wrote this, quote, even Paul said of himself that he was the foremost, the worst of sinners. He said, He said this at the very place in Scripture where he is speaking of his ministry as an apostle. There can be no genuine knowledge of sin that does not lead me down to this depth. If my sin appears to me to be any way smaller or less reprehensible in comparison to the sins of others, then I am not yet recognizing my sin at all. My sin is of necessity the worst, the most serious, the most objectionable. Christian love will find any number of excuses for the sins of others. Only for my sin is there no excuse whatsoever. That is why my sin is the worst, end quote. When we see our sin as the worst, we see Christ's forgiveness in the greatest. 
as long as we fail to see the immensity of Christ's forgiveness, not just generally, but personally, we fail to see all of Christ. Friends, get this. If you fail to see Christ's forgiveness, not just generally, like, like in this kind of obtuse, like, oh, Jesus, he, he forgives the sins of the world. If you don't see it personally, if you can't look at your sins for what they really are, as objectionable as they really are, and then turn your eyes to the cross of Christ and see Jesus Christ there saying, no, I have paid that price, then you have not seen all of Christ yet. We'll fail to live like Christ then. We'll fail to give. We'll fail to forgive. You see, there are some who have gone without or have experienced tremendous loss, who've been wronged in deep and significant ways. Some of you here this morning, this is part of your story. You've experienced things that I've never experienced. And you've had loss that I've never had. And you've been wronged in ways that I've never been wronged. And I want you to understand that I do not mean to lessen this reality in any way. I don't. There are things that you've gone through. There's been seasons of lacking that you've had that that I cannot begin to understand from my own life experience. There are things that have been done to you that I cannot begin to understand from the things that I have actually personally experienced. And friends, it's easy to look at other people's lives and to think, now why didn't I get that instead? Why, why, why God, did I get this life? Did I have to go through these things? Why am I having to struggle with this stuff? When, when that person's gift, that person's life looks so much better, why did they get that and I get this? And I don't mean to lessen how difficult these things are in any way. I don't. I only mean to elevate your view of Christ's gift to you and his forgiveness of you. You see, the temptation is to look at what the Heavenly Father has given someone else and see what he's given us as inferior. But at Christmas, we remember. And as we prepare for Christmas through Advent, we remember the one who came not just as the giver, but as the gift. And not just as any gift, but as a suffering servant. I don't know why each is given what they're given. I don't pretend to understand the mind of God in those things, but I am confident of two things. I'm confident first that whatever you've been given in life, it's not just bad luck. It's not chance. It's not just stuff that randomly happens to you and there's no rhyme or reason to it. Every single thing has purpose If we had the perspective of our Heavenly Father, then we could see 
just as Christ's life was a gift that came through pain, was the greatest gift that came through the greatest pain, so too, so too, it is not just chance or luck, but it is by the purpose of our Heavenly Father. And so I'm confident that it's not just random, but I'm also confident of this, friends. I'm confident that it is worth it. It is worth it. Christ's forgiveness, it reconciles us to God. And if no pain in this world was too great for Jesus to bear, to endure, in comparison to the gift that he won for us, then no pain in this world will outweigh the reward that will be given to Christ's followers that we will receive on that day that we await. Friends, do you understand? I don't know. I don't know why one gets one thing and one gets another. But what I do know is this, that God has given you gifts and he has provided for you physically and he has provided a way for you spiritually through forgiveness to be reconciled to God through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And I don't understand all of how everything works out, but I do know this, no matter what you have experienced in this life, no matter how terrible it is, the gift that you will unwrap on that day is worth every minute. Yes, we need something much more than just physical provision. And Jesus came to give us what we truly, truly need. We remember that 